You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia. And I'm her frequent co-host, Helen Pluckrose. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art. And about how everyone is wrong apart from us. This podcast is brought to you in association with ARIO magazine, a digital forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To become a patron and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for Tea. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, everybody. This is your host, Iona Italia, coming to you from Buenos Aires. And this week, I'm interviewing Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff, uh, who are the authors of the book, The Coddling of the American Mind. You may also be familiar with John's earlier work, in particular his book, The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Disagree About Politics. I think that was more or less the subtitle. Uh, John? Well, why good people are divided by politics and religion, but close enough. Hello, Iona. Glad to be here. Hello. And uh, Greg is also the chairman of FIRE, which is an organization protecting the free speech rights of students and faculty on campus. Welcome to both of you. Th- thanks for having us. Um, I'd like to begin by talking about what you see as, what you chart in the book, The Coddling of the American Mind, is a change in the atmosphere on campus. And can you tell me exactly where you date that change to and how you would characterize that change? Uh, sure. Um, it, and it's actually pretty easy to pinpoint because it did seem so uh, dramatic. It was such an obvious shift. Um, I, I'd been working on campuses defending free speech since about 2001. Um, and for all of my career, despite sort of conservative stereotypes, the best constituency for free speech were the students themselves. Um, and what we were mainly fighting, and in my first book, Unlearning Liberty, which it's primarily about, are abuses by administrators, um, sometimes high-level but mostly low-level campus bureaucrats. Um, But uh, the students generally got free speech, even offensive speech. They understood that offensive jokes needed to be protected, uh, oftentimes better than even some of the professors. But sometime around 2013, 2014, for the first time in my career, and it was very disappointing for us, we suddenly found a significant number of students what we, on what we would call the wrong side of free speech issues. Um, and the thing that really made it so uh, different than any uh, movement I was familiar with in the history of, of, of censorship um, was how much the students were relying on sort of quasi-medical justifications for why the speaker can't speak here, why we need microaggression, uh, why we need microaggression policies, why we need safe spaces. And the logic behind it didn't sound quite right to me. It sounded like they were getting the psychology very much off. So I went to um, talk to my friend Jonathan Haidt about it, uh, and uh, it's, we've been working together ever since. Yeah, and I can just add on the timing, uh, if you do a Google Trends search for terms like microaggressions and uh, trigger warnings, um, they don't really exist before 2011, and then they surge up in 2014. And that's when I first noticed. It was January or so of 2014, uh, and um, I began seeing strange things in my classes. I began reading about uh, the, the, all these things in in national media. And so when Greg came to talk to me in about May of 2014, it just seemed like 
whoa, where did this come from? Like out of nowhere, a year ago, I had not heard of any of these terms and suddenly they were they were all around. And did you notice a change in your interactions uh, in, in uh, day-to-day life in the classroom with students, with other faculty? Well, I didn't notice it uh, much with my, my own students because I uh, am only teaching MBA students here at, at NYU Stern. MBA students tend to be in their late 20s. And so as we say in the book, our explanation for why it came out of nowhere, why we went from zero to 60 in one year, is because uh, iGen or Gen Z, the, the generation that begins with birth year 1995, they first show up on campus in the fall of 2013. And so these new ideas, and again, it's not their fault, it's that this that year uh, or that generation was so overprotected, they got social media in middle school for a whole variety of reasons. Kids born in 1995 are different from the millennials when it comes to speech. As Greg said, the millennials were okay with occasionally raunchy jokes or provocative statements. Um, it really is a shift between the millennials and Gen Z. Mm. Greg, have you noticed have you noticed differences in your interactions, day to day interactions? Um, well, I speak on campuses a lot, and I've I've taught First Amendment uh, uh, classes at at, at uh, George Mason Law School, um, and it's funny because like the the kind of students who go to Mason Law School tend to be uh, a little bit older. Um, but I, uh, but I did definitely n- notice one time when I had one of my speakers who uh, has a uh, Mark Randazza who has a, a color- colorful language, shall we say. I found myself nervous about <laughs> his presentation in a way I wouldn't have been maybe five years earlier. Right, because you felt you might be accused of actually harming. Uh, he might accuse you of harming people. Uh, well, not, not not that he would, but the, the the students might. And it's important to know that that um you know I, when I say I've been doing this in two thousand one, I've watched people and professors and students alike get in trouble for mostly what would be considered pretty tame speech, oftentimes faux pas, um, uh, for my entire career. So this was a concern that I would have had even prior to um, uh, 2013, 2014. Um, but at, at, after 2013, 2014 was when I really started seeing professors who had more or less said to me, oh, there's no problem on campus, start coming to me, be careful, and saying, be careful. So Helen Pluckrose has also joined us. Hello, Helen. Hello. So, um, Greg, you were talking about your experiences, how your experiences in the classroom and in general day-to-day interactions have changed since the advent of Generation Z on campus. So how this general shift in discourse and attitudes has affected you personally as as a teacher. Well, I I only teach occasionally, um, but I do speak on campuses many times a year, dozens of times a year, most years. Um, and, uh, for most of my career, you know, I would talk about some of these really rather ridiculous, um, cases of censorship on campus that, um, usually produce, you know, reams of laughter from students and adults alike because they're, they tend to be so sort of, uh, absurd. And it was around, uh, but my first book on learning liberty came out in twenty, right at the end of twenty twelve, and I and I noticed a change even from speaking on campus just for when I was doing it in the spring of twenty thirteen to when I was speaking on in the fall of twenty thirteen, that uh, students seemed to 
just increasingly being uh, trying to justify or figure out why uh, administrators would act in a particular way with a real sense to sort of rationalize or sympathize with people who censored speech that was unquestionably protected. I, I would be particularly interested in that because I'm never quite sure if it is if things really have escalated um, hugely since 2015, or if that is is when I myself have have become more absorbed in it. Is do, do you think it, it it would be true to say that there has been a, a real sort of escalation of um, sort of building of um, grievance on grievance and and victimhood on victimhood um, over the last three years? Yes, I can speak to that. Um, so this is John. And uh, we, we've had some very productive debates with critics who say that if you look at nationally representative data about attitudes about free speech, uh, that not much has changed. And where the critics are right is to note that there are 4,700 institutions of higher education in the United States, and most of them are open admission, uh, or th there's just not much going on there. Um, conversely, when I talk at, uh, at, at our top universities, and especially at liberal arts colleges in the Northeast and in the, along the Pacific uh, Coast, um, it is much more wide, widespread. In fact, when you have private conversations with professors, whatever their politics, they'll talk about how now they're so careful, how this crazy thing happened in my class last week, how somebody, my friend was brought up on charges for this. So I think what we're learning is that the, the rise in anxiety and depression, which I hope we'll get into a little later, but that there's been a huge rise in depression, anxiety, and fragility, that is everywhere. Wherever I go, um, uh, professors, uh, soccer coaches, music teachers, everybody says, wow, the kids in the last few years, they, they fall apart at small provocations. They're much more delicate. They're much more easily discouraged. So something is happening nationally about fragility. So the, the increase in fragility with Gen Z is national. It's across races and social classes, um, but it's especially in the Northeast, in the West Coast, uh, in schools that have, are strong in the humanities, schools where the grievance studies departments uh, are active, um, that this fragility becomes turned to political purposes, uh, to a kind of eternal prosecution of, of the right, of offending ideas, of uh, whatever ideas are not, not, uh, not welcome um, in that worldview. So I would say it, there's a mental health crisis nationally, which is politicized on some campuses, but not most campuses. Mm. I, I wonder how much this, this um, plays in as well to the idea of the, the value of having a marginalised identity and, and taking on problems like mental illness and obesity as, as part of, of one's identity in order to attain a certain status. No, I think that's exactly right. I know you you in, you uh, interviewed uh, 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 Manning and Campbell on their mm. victimhood culture book, and that's exactly right. That's what I began to see the first signs of in 2014, 2015. That's what I see at elite campuses. So something I've noticed as I've been traveling around is that at schools in the South in particular, I, I gave a talk at Auburn in Alabama and at the University of Richmond, um, at schools in the South where there are extraordinary norms of politeness, this grievance culture, this calling out others doesn't seem to happen very much uh, because call-out culture is so unbelievably rude. It's an individual presuming 
presuming that I can shame you at any moment. Yes. And it's exactly the opposite of what students learn if they're raised in a culture of politeness, which is you try not to humiliate people. You try not to attack them. You give them the benefit of the doubt. Um, and so even though there surely is some sense in which if we looked at racial slurs, if we looked at if we had some measure of objective racial sensitivity, it is surely higher in Middlebury, Vermont or New Haven, Connecticut uh, than it is in, in Alabama. Yet I venture to propose or I suspect that being a, being a student of color at some of these schools, well, I don't know. I can't really say that it's, I don't know whether it's better at Auburn. I can simply say that a culture of politeness uh, is one in which the students are able to get along a lot better. And I heard this from the black students there. They, they seem to think that things were pretty good. And that, and that's one of the things that um, uh, that I find interesting when people when we going back and reading the closing of the American Mind, partially because even though we're not huge fans of the title of our own book, I wanted to read it to see what the parallels were. And so much about the closing of the American Mind was about uh, relativism and, and uh, uh, Al, Alan Bloom complaining about relativism. But what's interesting about this movement and and, and when we talk about sort of like the high political correctness type movements. Um, uh, it, it, it takes the form of a, of a real sort of um, zealous uh, moral absolutism. Uh, and it, it breaks what my father uh, would call kind of the cardinal rule of being a cosmopolitan. My father is Russian. My mother is British. Um, and he would scold me, you, you know, when I'd be in a different country saying, if you show up to some, well, actually, if you show up to some place expecting them to abide by your norm, you are acting like hick. Um, he would say in this very politically incorrect way, uh, but it was a way to remind you that you have to kind of like, adjust to other people's norms. Whereas what we see kind of going on on uh, on campuses is kind of the, the famous story of why New Yorkers sometimes don't make great diplomats because they expect everybody to sort of like work around their norms, whereas Southerners kind of expect to sort of adjust to yours. I think we have the same thing with Londoners, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you do. Yeah. So do you think that um, being mentally ill has become, in some senses, has become one of these valorized identities? Yeah, that's a good question. Let's let's start with whether the rise is real, and then we can talk about whether uh, some people are just glomming onto it or pretending or, or adopting a, an identity. I'm not even sure that those are necessarily mutually contradictory things. No, that's right. But I think what we have to do is we have to establish uh, we have to establish what the underlying rates are first, and so because uh, that is still debated. Um, what's very clear is that in self-report data, if you survey American adolescents or college students and you ask them, uh, "Are you mentally, or I'm sorry, do you suffer from a mental disorder such as depression?" or um, here are a bunch of symptoms. Do you have these? And if you uh, report five out of nine symptoms of depression, you are uh, classified as having had a major depressive episode in the last year. Um, what's very clear is those those curves began rising sharply around 2011, and especially for girls. Uh, so American uh, teenage girls have, are having much higher rates of depression and anxiety, at least by self-report. Boys are up too, but not by as much. Uh, by, for the girls, the rates are between 50 and 100% higher. And some people, in fact, there was even an essay in the New York Times a few weeks ago by, a, by a, um, an excellent psychiatrist, Richard Friedman, uh, where he said, oh, don't worry, social media is not rotting your kids' brains. Don't worry, there's no rise in mental illness. It's just self-report. Kids these days are more comfortable. They're more honest about talking about it. So all this, all this data you hear about an epidemic of mental illness, it's not true. Uh, but Greg and I were very careful in the book to figure out whether that's what's happening. And because 
be, so we looked at behavioral data. We looked at hospital. There's a, a study in JAMA, a medical journal, of hospital admissions for uh, deliberate self-harm, non-fatal self-injury. And beginning right around that time, 2011, 2012, the curves for uh, teenage girls shoot up the curve for the youngest girls to like 11 to uh, 10 to 14 years old, year old, these are like preteens, um, that's up more than 100%. Um, interestingly, the curve for young women in their 20s isn't up. So again, it's not the millennials who are slitting their wrists now. It's members of iGen, especially women, young women are slitting their wrists, cutting themselves, banging their heads into walls, doing things that get them admitted to hospitals at much higher rates. This is not just an, uh, an artifact of self-report. Mm. Mm. The suicide rate shows the same thing. Uh, the suicide rate for boys is up 25%. If you look at the last two years of, of federal data and you compare it to 2001 to 2010, uh, we just took an average of those 10 years. It was fairly stable then. So the boys' rate is up 25%. And the suicide rate for girls, for teenage girls, is up 70%. So this is this is okay. You know, we we were we cautioned about catastrophizing, and of course, there's always the risk of a moral panic, and there are plenty of moral panics to go around. But when you see the suicide rate is up seventy percent for teenage American girls, yeah, there's a really serious problem. We've got to focus on this. We've got to figure this out. And to the extent that things we're doing on campus are are going to help or hurt, well, we've got to get that right encouraging students to think of themselves as marginalized and victimized. I mean, this is like textbook clinical psychology. This is yeah, a this really is, bad uh, what, thing what to do. Described mm. as a kind of mm. um, reverse cognitive behavioral um, therapy, which is in, yeah, entrenching the, the very behaviors that we're, that we're encouraged to, to overcome. And uh, I, I, I found that, um, that, that idea clarified an awful lot to me because I, I've been looking at this in, in terms of um, me too, where um, you know some, some very very good stuff has come out of out of that with um, people feeling able to report um, being victims of, of um, serious crime and um, and address that. I'm I'm wondering if if um, if that is is a sort of another manifestation of the same thing because if if um, you know people who who live in a, a big city we're going to sort of um, encounter a thousand men a week. And if one in a million is has a tendency to be abusive, there's a very high chance of um, somebody being being groped or um, or sexually propositioned aggressively or, or something in, in their lifetimes. And I'm wondering if what is happening now is where people used to be more confident that yes, I live in a city. I'm probably at some point going to get burgled. I'm probably at some point going to get mugged. My bike is likely to be stolen, and uh, yeah, somebody might um, just show me his penis. These kind of um, horrible things, which which shouldn't happen and must be illegal and must we must try to reduce, have cat catastrophized in that sense along the lines of um, gender oppression, much more than along the lines of the, the risk of, of having one's purse stolen or something. Do, 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 do you see what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I'd like to speak to that first. Well, so I, I think it's important to keep, the, to keep the two things separate because they're very different age groups. So the Me Too movement grows out of women, especially women in media and entertainment, these are generally not women in their early 20s. These are, as I understand it, it's women who've been around a long time, um, do, are not overly thin-skinned, uh, are not hypersensitive, but have dealt with creeps. And when I talk to women of all sorts, it's not one in a million men who are creeps. It's, you know, 
one in 10 or one in 20. It's some fairly large number of men are creeps who who do gross things or creep out you know, hundreds or thousands of women over the course of their lives. So I think the Me Too movement is, is based in a very real problem. It's addressing that problem. Of course, there are violations of due process. Of course, there are problems along the way. Um, I, but I don't think it's connected to the sorts of things that Greg and I are writing about. Now, I think it's likely to get connected. That's my fear, is that a whole generation of young women, so Gen Z women, who already have been raised to think the world is dangerous and who have already been raised to think that sex is dangerous and you can't have sex unless you have a signed contract and all sorts of, we've already been, you know, as Greg's organization has covered, I mean, the the regulation of social life, the regulation of sexuality, um, that's been going on a while now. So I do think that gender relations uh, for Gen Z are going to be just horrible. Um, I hope there are fewer creeps. I hope that men are better behaved, but I think, um, you know, when I remember when, you know, when I was in college, I mean, students loved to talk about sex. They loved jokes about sex. It was something they thought about generally positively. Uh, and I don't know what sexual life is going to be like for Gen Z. One thing that we want to be clear about in the book is that we think that some of the problems we're seeing are actually just the outgrowth of otherwise positive things. So, you know, to in a sense, political correctness is people uh, is an attempt for people to try to be uh, more compassionate, more thoughtful in what they say. But it becomes you know, derisively called PC when it when it goes overboard. And unfortunately, that's a tendency to take things a bit a bit too far. Um, and the other concept is anti fragility, uh, which is really s- central to the book. Um, which is that uh, human beings, uh, children, uh, students, uh, both benefit from a certain amount of stressors and actually are harmed by a lack of exposure to um, uh, to, to stressors, including uh, you know interactions with people who might be difficult. But um, but that actually this is kind of required to, to be a successful, mature, uh, a- a- autonomous person. And when we talk about anti-fragility uh, in, in the book, what we're concerned is that we've done such a uh, we've been so careful about trying to eliminate a lot of the abrasions in daily life. We might be unwittingly creating a, a generation or we might have created a generation of people um, that are less skilled at actually handling uh, what an ordinary life could throw your way. Mm-hmm. That's right. I, I saw a stunning example of that recently at a, a college I spoke at in the Midwest. Um, where apparently students can request no contact orders. Now, of course, we, we were familiar with these in cases of domestic abuse. There's a legal provision for usually to keep a, a potentially violent man away from a woman. Uh, but this was the campus, uh, you know, the Office of Student Affairs issuing non-legal, non-binding pieces of paper or whatever they are um, so that one person must stay away from another and some of them are romantic relationships that went bad, but some of them are roommate conflicts, just normal interpersonal conflicts that students uh, cannot work out on their own. And they've been raised in a state that we call, well, we, we call it moral dependency, but we, of course, we get that from Manning and Campbell from their wonderful writing on victimhood culture. Um, but uh, because we have done such a good job in this country of making G- uh, Gen Z morally dependent, there's always been an adult present. If you see something, say something. Don't try this at home. Um, so when they come to college, they have a conflict with someone. And what do they do? They go to the dean and they ask for a do not contact order. And one professor said that, uh, 
you know, there were two students. It's just, he had a small seminar class and two students in there had do not contact orders against each other. Uh, and so only one student could be in class at, at a time. And ultimately, with the professor's help, they worked it out so they could both be in class at the same time. They would just sit on opposite sides of the room and not talk to each other. But it's a level of absurdity that we fall into when uh, we make kids morally dependent in, uh, uh, from in childhood through high school. And then we send them to college where the, the administrators, the, bureau, the bureaucracy, is designed to avoid bad publicity, avoid lawsuits. Um, they have the bureaucratic mindset of, well, there's a problem. Let's establish a procedure to solve it rather than saying, let's kick it back to the students and make them solve it. I mean, if there's a risk of violence, we'll step in. But short of violence, they have to learn to do this themselves. I feel there is there is rather a, a difference in emphasis between your book and um, Jason and Bradley's book that in Jason and Bradley's book, they are focused much more on status so being a victim um, is a kind of becomes a chosen identity because it has a certain a certain ethical glamour or it gives you a um, it it gives you an authority as a speaker or as a writer it gives an authority to what you're saying mm-hmm. and your yes. book is that I don't want to imply that that. Um, Jason and Bradley's book is is in some way um, callous, but I felt that your book was much more. Uh, their book was more focused on the effects that this would have on other people, and your book is mm-hmm. much more focused on the effects that it has on the students themselves. And it's much less about something voluntarily chosen, or semi-voluntarily chosen, or weaponized as something that is that is actually um that is damaging to the people themselves and that is less that is less much less conscious well i think so a little bit of behind the scenes uh, information about this uh, is when when i first read their 2014 article on microaggressions it was one of the best things i'd ever read it was revelatory and it came out in 2014 i didn't read it till 2015 um and uh, um, and and then I wrote a uh, uh, I wrote a summary of it on the Heterodox Academy blog because it was just so good. I wanted to call it to the attention of the world. Um, so I love their sociological analysis. And I'll tell you honestly, we were planning on having a whole chapter on victimhood <laughs> yes, we culture, were. and it was going to be a whole chapter in our book. And there were you know we had so much we wanted to do in our book, and we just ran out of time because we had to get it out in time, and we kept missing deadlines as it was. So ultimately, we just had a, a short section on victimhood culture that we put in chapter uh, 10 on bureaucracy, where it does belong, because as we were just talking about, the bureaucracy uh, enables and encourages it, so it does fit there. So I don't think there's any contradiction between them and us. But you're right that there's a difference in emphasis, because our book is, is more psychological, less sociological, that we do some sociology. But we really are anchored on the fact that students in this generation are suffering, um, they are they are depressed and anxious, and those problems radiate outwards, bringing suffering and fear to their families. They radiate outward in the universities, bringing, in a sense, fear uh, to everyone who has to interact with them, the professors who have to teach on eggshells, the students who have to talk on eggshells. Um, so we are focused on the the problem students are facing as the core problem, and we try to understand that. And we are sympathetic. We're not blaming them. It's not their fault. 
And this is something that I get uh, for, from our, you know, strange position in the culture war is when you talk to like real sort of hard uh, right conservatives, they think that students are really just weaponizing victimhood uh, status and that, that it's just a rhetorical tactic. Now, of course, I know that when rhetorical tactics become uh, when they win every match you're in, then people, they tend to get abused. And I'm not saying they're uh, by no means am I saying they're ever abused. But one thing that I think does make John and my approach to this whole thing slightly different is that I do actually think that to a degree, some of these students are talking themselves into and are being persuaded that they are much more fragile than they actually naturally are. Um, and it's, it's actually really uh, having terrible psychological um, uh, side effects. Cause it, it was interesting to read some of the reports about, um, you know, high levels of stress and anxiety and depression among activists um, on campus. Now, these, these are just anecdotal individual uh, news stories, but it really shouldn't be much of a surprise because if you look at some of the ideology that we're telling this already um, a high, highly depressed, highly anxious generation. It has a very sort of fatalistic, uh, very, uh, it has a huge amounts of guilt and shame, but also fatalism attached to it. So, so I really do think that some of the terrible advice that we're giving this generation at every possible level um, is not just harming their communities or harming free speech, but we think it's genuinely harming them too. I found your um, yeah the, your comparison of it with um, peanut allergies to to be very clarifying. I, do you th- think if if we can kind of get this message across that um, that yeah you are you are being denied um, the ability to to reach your sort of anti fragile um, natural status uh, by this. I, I I do think that is an important um, angle that you have come from, which is that that harm is being done um, to students. That it's not necessarily their fault. That their perspective on things is is sort of being gradually undermined. The the idea that that they can cope, and I think as you said, this is the psychological aspect of it, which um, complements the sociological aspect that. Um, that Bradley and was were looking at, but if we sort of go out again, I wonder what effects. Yeah, peanut soci- allergies uh, have doubled or tripled in frequency, but only in countries in which the medical advice is that pregnant women should stay away from peanuts, and uh, 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 toddlers or infants and toddlers should be kept away from peanut products. It's only in those countries that the rate of allergies is rising. So some uh, some allergists, some immunological researchers did a very straightforward study uh, where they had uh, 600 or so uh, new, new or recently born kids. The, the parents either followed standard advice and kept them away from peanuts. These are kids who are at risk of a high at higher risk of an allergy um, or they uh, followed an, a modified regimen, which is let's give them peanuts, meaning let's give them a kind of a corn snack dusted with peanut powder from the time they were just a couple of months old. And lo and behold, fourteen uh, percent of the kids in the standard condition had a peanut allergy at age five, but only two percent of the kids uh, who were exposed to peanuts had a peanut allergy. So we could pretty much wipe out peanut allergies if we simply understood that the immune system is anti-fragile, that it needs exposure to threats and challenges in order to develop. If we applied the same idea to kids, kids are going to get in conflicts. They're going to say mean things to each other. They're going to tease each other. And if adults create a culture in which there's no teasing allowed, no struggles, no conflicts, um, if the adults are always there to settle it, we're depriving their basic social, social psychological uh, abilities. We, we're depriving them of the ability to develop. So then when they get into college and they get in an argument with somebody, what do they do? 
They go to the administrators and ask for do not contact order because they're not able to work it out themselves. And then they graduate from college and they get hired by a company and they overhear someone telling a joke that offends them. And what do they do? They go to HR and they say, you got to do something about this. Um, when Greg and I wrote our initial Atlantic article in 2015, a lot of people said, oh, come on, it's just college students. When they get out into the real world, they're going to have to change. But that turns out to not be true. Um, when you are able to claim that you are a victim, um, and uh, then the world will adapt to you, or at least many portions of the world. And so we're beginning to hear a lot. I'm beginning to hear a lot. I work in a business school. I talk to a lot of business people. Um, the uh, people in their young, in their early 20s, their new hires, are they seem to be much more difficult to work with. They're much more likely to go to HR. Um, they have much higher rates of anxiety and depression. So this is not, not just a campus problem. This is actually going to affect, it is beginning to affect corporate America. Uh, and I think it's going to affect it in a very big way over the next five years. I think this is going to be a very big news story to follow over the next few years. Well, in a sense, it's also much more compatible with corporate life than the old forms of rebellion at university. Um, you know, back back in the um, Paleolithic times when I was a student, um, you know, people who were people who were involved in student activism were very had very radical, mostly anti-capitalist or communist beliefs, and they were um, loud and they were going on marches and they were. Um, holding up big placards and things, and they were disrupting and protesting. And those kinds of activities, you know, if you go and get an office job, you have to um, take off your eight nose piercings and put on a shirt, and you can't be going around with placards protesting everything and being loud and noisy and radical. But you can, of course, um, be ultra uh, politically correct, be very careful about your speech. You can be monitoring other people's speech. You have HR as a mechanism for complaints. And you, you're you in a culture, in a litigious culture or a culture in which people are concerned about their protecting their brand and their image. They are liable to be sensitive to those kinds of complaints. I, I'd actually like to push back a little bit there. Um, I, you know, one thing that really has affected my, my my worldview is not just my work on campus, but also that I'm an employer. Uh, Fire employs about 50 people, and that's a daily reality of of how you you know run an organization. And I think both our democracy, uh, our democracy, our society, and corporations rely on this assumption that people are going to be able to handle things that were once considered sort of in the personal do domain on a one-on-one -on -one, uh, basis. Um, e even though we've uh, campuses have done a lot to try to uh, create this environment in which every um, uh, you know daily abrasion, every or for that matter, very serious things do get reported up to someone. Uh, in the administration, um, we might not have really thought through what that society would look like if every conflict is intermediated the same way helicopter parents do for their do for their kids. And I think it really poses some very uh, uh, serious problems to how a democracy functions, to how corporations functions, and to universities function if we if we really do have um, this form of moral dependency from cradle to grave. Oh, I think it's I think it's harmful, certainly, but I think it's also it's possible to continue that attitude on from university into uh, into your professional life. I'm probably not explaining this very well, but I think that this 
um, there is a kind of uh, easy slippage between being at university and reporting things to uh, admin there and being in a job and reporting things to HR, whereas there isn't a kind of easy transition between being a wild anarchist with a Mohican and then going into your uh, corporate yeah. job. But yeah, so I, only, I would just add to what Iona said by saying, yes, at first it seems that uh, that they will be it will be an easy transition because they're they're accustomed to working within bureaucratic systems. Um, but uh, once once this generation comes in, if they behave in the same way, it's going to lead to the same problems, namely uh, vastly decreased trust, a feeling of walking on eggshells. Um, I work in a business school. I study corporate culture. And already, I mean, there's long been a problem with speak up culture um, that in many companies, people see problems and they're afraid to speak up because they don't want to be punished for it. They just just keep your head down, don't report. So that's always, that's long been a problem. That's not a generational thing. Uh, but a company that has a high level of trust where its management makes clear, we're, you know, we're all a team. We really want to know if there are problems. So we can fix them before they blow up. Um, that's what good companies do. However, um, if they start hiring a lot of students who've taken a lot of courses in grievance studies uh, and who have this attitude, um, they're going to find themselves bogged down with constant conflicts within the company. And it's going to have the same effect within the company that it has on campus. Namely, people will be afraid uh, to share their ideas, they'll be afraid to tell jokes, they'll be afraid to socialize. So I think we're going to see a decline in trust uh, and a decline in efficiency within companies that um, that don't. Now, let me be clear: it's not as though you know it's like there's these um, aliens from you know from Mars, and if you hire them, they're going to take over your company. Um, leaders need to set norms, and that's what college presidents are dr- dramatically failing at. Um, they, rather than standing up and saying, "Okay, now you know, I know your instinct is to do X, but look, here's what we're trying to do here on this campus. Here's the kind of climate we need. So here are the policies we're going to have." I mean, if they do that, they would be applauded by most, but they might be criticized by a few and they're afraid of the few. So I think uh, corporate leaders need to start doing this um, because the, you know, these are kids. These are our kids. I mean, Greg and I have kids. My kids are Gen Z um, and Greg's are whatever the next generation after Gen Z is going to be. Um, but, you know, they're still, they're good kids and they're, they're not, they can learn new norms. They can learn new habits. That's what our book is all about. But leaders are going to have to set those new norms. Yeah, I, I, I'm I, obviously I'm in a, a different context, but I, I think the um, UK is is sort of following quite closely behind um, the whole sort of culture wars of of the US, and um, I, we're also noticing here that there is a, a greater um, sensitivity in employment um, where um, it, people are. Employers are afraid of being inadvertently racist or sexist, and and sort of an anecdotal thing. My my adopted daughter is is Indian, and she once commented in some context that somebody she was talking to was a white man, and this immediately resulted in having a meeting to ask if she has any concerns of uh, that she's the only woman of color there, and that uh, their diversity policy and their inclusion, and um, it was such a an overreaction i i'm not sure to what extent we are now seeing this this sort of oversensitivity this almost a fragility in employers of of being 
being afraid to um, to say the wrong thing. And yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. This whole thing is evolving so fast. It wasn't there in early 2013. Um, by by late 2015, it was widespread in uh, the academy, but it had not entered the corporate world. In 2017, I think we started seeing it enter the corporate world. Uh, the Demore memo, the Google memo, was the, the most visible case. Um, but there were there were others. So I think in 2017, it first entered the American corporate world. So maybe in 2018, it's first entering the British corporate world. Um, it's spreading very, very quickly. Uh, I haven't seen signs of it in France, Germany, Switzerland, uh, Scandinavia. They have political correctness, but they don't have it linked to the medicalization, the, the thin skin that we see here. But again, it's evolving so quickly that a year from now, things really could be different everywhere. Yeah, actually, John, John and I have, have had a decent track record on our predictions. And one thing that we can predict with a goodly amount of confidence is that HR offices are going to be pretty overwhelmed over the next couple of years. Yes. Yeah, so if listeners are looking for a field to go into, might I suggest employment law? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was thinking university admin, you know, if I could make my decisions again, I think I might retrain as a diversity officer. Yeah, I, <laughs> think, I think they would quickly smell you out and kill you. <laughs> <laughs> Not literally, though, to be fair. No, literally. <laughs> We're, we're running out of time. Should, should we just ask um, uh, John and Greg if, if there's if there's anything they'd like to ask people to do to fight this? Or would that? Be oh a- yes, I'd, I'd be very happy to answer that. I'm sure Greg would too. Um, so I'll go. I'll go first. I mean, Greg and I uh, both have uh, run or started organizations that are devoted to working on this. Uh, addressing this problem on campus. So if any listeners want to uh, support us either financially or by by joining or signing up for our email list, Greg's, of course, is FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. Um, I co-founded heterodoxacademy.org. Um, and uh, also we created a product called Open Mind. If you go to openmindplatform.org, um, it's a program that actually teaches people to deal with diverse viewpoints designed to be used on campus, but actually seems to work great in high school and in companies and in churches and synagogues, which are increasingly divided. And then the other piece of this, in addition to working in higher education, the other piece of this is childhood. And Lenore Skenazy is the is the the wonderful uh, person here who diagnosed the problem and coined the term free-range parenting. Lenore has started an organization called letgrow.org. So if any listeners out there have kids under 18, I urge you to go to letgrow.org, um, especially if you might have some influence in uh, in your elementary or middle school, the middle school that your kids go to. Uh, all kinds of great suggestions for how to reduce overprotection, moral dependency, how to help kids uh, recognize or how to help them realize their anti-fragile nature. Wonderful. Thank you. Greg, what do you have to add? So yeah, uh, w- with regards to you know when I uh, usually explain what can be done on campus, the first thing I want people to do is sort of get over sort of the cynicism and sort of the fatalism about um, the situation on campus. Uh, partially because we haven't even tried some really basic things yet, and one thing that uh, faculty really need to do is to flex some muscle to try to make sure that orientation isn't strictly run by the same administrators who really emphasize something kind of like a right not to be offended as opposed to emphasizing how you actually um, function in a in a genuinely diverse society with variety of opinions variety of modes of expression and explaining freedom of speech academic freedom and the difficult process of freedom of inquiry um 
we haven't gotten rid of speech codes on every campus. Um, we sh should be seriously reconsidering what we're doing with bias-related incident programs, for example, um, which can be very uh, toxic if done poorly. So there are a lot of really basic things that we could do that could really help um, ease some of these problems on campus um, that we can't give up until we've tried at least, well, actually, until we've tried all of them. Hmm. That's very interesting. Thank you. And, and as parents, um, I, I have to say, I, I found your book most useful as the parent of a of a fourteen year old. So um, I'd like to yeah thank you both very much for it. It's um, another excellent uh, contribution to the conversation. Thank you so much for coming, both of you. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Real pleasure. Thank you again. You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for ARIO magazine. ARIO is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant, edited by Helen Pluckrose with the assistance of sub-editor Yours Truly. At ARIO, we hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both ARIO and Two for Tea are entirely audience-supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for ARIO, A-R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and Two for Tea. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. Plus. By becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. Two for Tea is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you're listening on a podcast app, take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.